I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. From Backpage, I'm Martin Gregg and welcome to another episode of Between the Lines. This is my conversation with tennis commentator and host of the tennis podcast, David Law, about the new Andy Murray documentary on Amazon Prime, Resurfacing. Even if you've watched some of the other documentaries on Amazon Prime, I think this one stands apart. And that's why I wanted to get the story behind it from David, who's been shadowing Andy's career from the beginning. As I mentioned, David is the host of one of my favourite shows, The Tennis Podcast, and they are currently doing their annual kickstart starter which I'll give you more information on at the end of the show. Enjoy. So David I, I want to speak about resurfacing because it was a documentary that really kind of confounded my expectations I guess. The access was amazing but I think that, that struck me more than anything was Murray's openness which I found to be absolutely astonishing in parts. Now I've not been near the, the tennis circuit in 10-15 years so I thought I would really like to get your perspective on it did this documentary reveal sides to Murray that, that you'd never seen before? I think it probably more filled in some blanks for us, that the people that follow him all the time, because we've seen his his journey from being this really awkward teenager to somebody who who's actually become very open with us for for the most part. I mean, there are there are moments, and you you tend to find, particularly when you go to Grand Slams, when the spotlight is on him. I find that he we we call it puts his game face on, and he, he he's he's much less open at those particular points and he's almost a a little bit adversarial and grumpy with us but for the most part if you get him outside of those really tense times you see he's a pretty open book with that with those particularly with those that follow him regularly but what I would say with this documentary what they did is they didn't necessarily go out intending to create a, a documentary that would end up like this they couldn't possibly have foreseen the the story that he went on the journey that he went on in terms of thinking his career was completely finished to coming back and having this this surgery which nobody had ever had before and played professional tennis again with and and ended up winning the doubles at queens you know that's where where the arc that it goes on but the the woman that shot it with him is kind of part of the family she's uh, the fiance of his brother-in-law of his of his wife's brother and i i saw her come to to the queen's club where i'm media director a couple of years in a row and we we opened the doors really because we knew that it's something that he wanted to have filmed so we let her get follow him around the the player lounge and to the practice courts and sit in the, the support team seats places that that cameras can't normally go and you could tell that he was he was all for this and he was just very comfortable and open about it but at the time I think it was just meant to sort of give a bit of an insight into what his life is like and then as it gathered pace they started to realize actually that this is just an incredible story that is unfolding so they kept shooting and I think with Murray he 
he has a really curious mind. He really is interested in finding out everything, how it works. And, and you know, if you find yourself in his company, he, he, he spends as much time asking you questions as you asking him questions. And so I feel that he's just gradually become a lot more comfortable with, with telling, with just being an open book. I think he's more, he's happier just to say it how it is, whether it upsets people in terms of what he's commenting on or whether he's revealing stuff about himself. Yeah, he, he, if he's going to do something, he does tend to do it properly. The thing that, that struck me was the, the total ownership that he took of the documentary. Um, when, it, when I first was aware that the documentary was happening, it was when he was on the red carpet, like maybe two or three weeks ago in London, and he was talking about it. And this didn't seem to me at the time like this was something that his agent said, oh, you know, this will be a good idea for you to do this Amazon documentary. He was saying, you know, this is my thing, and I hope people really enjoy it. And then when I watched it, and I thought, wow, um, he's recording footage from under his duvet at night where he's admitting his career is over. Uh, he records these quite profound voice memos where he talks talks about the Dumblain massacre, he talks about his parents' divorce, you know, Jamie leaving home, these three huge kind of moments in his life. Um, Amazon film at his home, I mean, a very, very private individual, but you see his his wife and, and his children, him playing with them. At some point, obviously, he just decided to go all in in this documentary because it was only meant to be up to the point of his first hip operation, which didn't work. But then when the story continued, there must have been a point where he said, right, this is all in. Uh, and and I'm going to follow this story through to its conclusion and let the cameras film it. But again, I think a big part of that is the fact that this was filmed by Olivia Cappuccino, who's Mm. somebody he's got to know well, and he's clearly ended up trusting her. And whilst it feels like a very immersive documentary, it was always only her. I I never saw anybody else. I never saw another camera come. So she has, I think she, I read somewhere that she'd filmed four and a half thousand hours of footage and she was just around. So I think she ended up becoming kind of just part of the furniture to some degree. But the thread that runs through it is her just constantly asking him, why do you care so much about tennis? Why are you so into it? And I think it was a slight self-discovery for him to try to work that out himself because he's he, he's obviously buried an awful lot in his of his past and tried to just put it away so that he can cope with life day to day and what you saw in in the documentary is him deciding or or just discovering himself that he, he there was more to it than than just the get playing the sport and there was a reason why he was the way he is and and he, he finds that out right in front of us what what i loved about about it was the the rawness of it the fact that it was just him under a duvet with his selfie video or his voice notes and the power of of something that's not massively produced like that it was just it gave it a visceral quality that i really appreciated and and yes i mean i think the the most interesting bit to me in terms of the access that we got was the day that he he more or less announced his retirement at that press conference in australia which was a press conference i attended and we we saw video of him agonizing about whether to to go ahead and actually tell us all this stuff or, or and his indecisiveness trying to work out is this it am i finished i don't know i actually my hip doesn't actually feel too bad this morning sure you know so he was going through all this stuff and i think that 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 was a real insight into the individual I, i've seen 
snippets of of his indecision over the years like that and that's not to criticize him that's just he can see the possibilities he can see the the alternatives and sometimes he doesn't know which path to take so he tends to leave things to the absolute last minute and then make his decision yeah, that was really interesting for me as well, that level of indecision. And there's actually a moment where, where Kim, his wife, kind of makes a joke about it. And she's like, oh, Andy's changed his mind again. I've always thought of him as a very decisive <laughs> guy. Um, and obviously you've picked up on you know elements of that indecision, but to see it to that extent. Actually, throughout the documentary, it's a kind of, it's a kind of mini theme, isn't it? This, this you know, toing and froing in his personality. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah, and I think then when push comes to shove... Once he's made his decision, he goes all in, to use your word from, from earlier on. And once he's decided he's going to do an interview or do have the cameras rolling, you know, they're in, he's not looking to finesse things. I mean, the fact that he went to that premiere of the, the documentary and that was the first time he'd ever seen it all. The license that he gave her to film it and the, the producers to edit it in their way, there was no looking over the shoulder and saying oh i don't like that a bit and you know i've heard i've heard other people do these sort of things and and micromanage them and he he doesn't do that Mm -hmm. he just he gives you what he is once he's made his decision to go for it he just goes for it um i mean if you if you i guess if you let him down or if he feels let down he you wouldn't get another opportunity but he's that that seems to be his his way of of operating is all or nothing when I first heard that it was his brother-in-law's fiance that was was directing it, um, I must say I was slightly sceptical. Um, I've had slight issues with some mm. of Amazon's output. I mean, stuff like the the Man City documentary was very interesting in parts, but in other ways, you kind of feel like it it is a bit of an in-house job. And I, I was kind of worried that this would be that. But I've got to be honest, David. I mean, time and time again, I kept being astonished at different aspects of it that kind of overrode any concerns I had about it. What do you think? Do you think that Cappuccini walked that line between obviously having that level of familiarity but keeping that kind of journalistic objectivity? Yeah, I do, really. I mean, I think that she just shot what she shot. And I think there is a, from from my experience with her, there is there is a journalistic edge to her in that she you could see how how much she wanted to get good stuff and the way you or I might in an interview we might conduct I didn't think there was there's much going on in terms of shielding at all I didn't that that was my sense and uh, look you, you might get an interviewee who who holds something back themselves but from her standpoint I didn't think it was compromised at all really I I think that one or two people have said it was a little too long and it's a shame that the Antwerp victory that he ended up having in the singles wasn't in there, which which I can see that point, certainly. But, but no, I, I think it's it, it's a documentary to be trusted, certainly. When I'm watching it, I don't feel... That didn't. That wasn't in the back of my mind that he's part. That she was part of the family or anything like that. I really enjoyed sort of, yeah, filling in the blanks for me and then for people. I, I spoke to my mum about it and she she watched it and you know she's not in the tennis world at all, and she was absolutely captivated by the whole story. She didn't realise all these ups and downs that happened. You know, she'd heard yes he'd had a hip injury and yes he'd come back and that was about it. <laughs> so no, I think it's. Um, it's an honest portrayal, and I wouldn't have any concerns about how legitimate it is. The 
late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. That familiarity thing I found really interesting because there were times where you just thought... He is speaking as if the camera's not there. Uh, that, that's the thing that, that, that kind of broke through for me. I thought, well, if you manage to put, pull that off, then nothing else matters really because you're seeing the real, you're seeing the real Andy Murray. Yeah, and, and I think that over the years, that's what has resonated with people from him. There are a lot of people that didn't like Andy Murray early on because of one or two things he said and maybe the way they were portrayed. And, and yeah, I mean, look, some of the things he does, I don't particularly like on court, the way he barks at his team. And he, he, he's, he doesn't, he's embarrassed by those things when he sees them back. Um, I think he's made one or two errors over the years, but he's authentic really. And I think people like that. Uh, I, I know other players and other sporting stars that are so much more conscious of how they come across and they do micromanage it. And I think that people can often see through that. And he's definitely managed to resonate with people because what you see is what you get. It ends on his first singles match back at Cincinnati in July 2019. But for me, and and you've mentioned it there, Antwerp would probably have been a more fitting place, surely, because that's where he beats Stan in the final in, in, in a classic kind of Andy Murray dogfight match. Did you not feel that like that would have been a, a kind of more appropriate full stop to, to the whole thing? Yeah, I mean, look, yeah, I think I don't I don't know the complete reasons why they didn't do that. But I think it's probably a timing issue of, of putting this thing to bed and saying, okay, we've finished the filming now. And I think that the, there must have been a thought process that how is it ever going to get any better than Andy Murray getting on the doubles court mm-hmm. uh, and, and winning it with Feliciano Lopez? How is it going to get any better than that? And, and also, oh, look, we managed to get him back out on court in singles again. They, I really don't think that they could possibly have seen Antwerp and a victory over Stan Wawrinka. I don't think they could have seen that coming. So I think that they probably ended up just pulling the plug a bit too soon in hindsight, you know, and I think in hindsight they would they would absolutely have loved to have had that in, is my guess. Mm-hmm. But y- you know what it's like with these things. You, if you're going to keep filming, you could... I mean, what if it didn't happen and you said, OK, I'll tell you what, we want to wait until he has one more singles moment. And what if it doesn't come? And what if he then retires? You know, yeah. it, it, yeah. it is yeah. difficult yeah. To, to, to make those sort of calls. But yeah, look, in hindsight, I think that that would have been the absolute perfect ending. 
I mean, just to finish up, David, um, we were talking a little bit before about Murray's mastery of the media, which is something that really interests me. Um, I covered Andy's first couple of Wimbledons, and at that point, you know, he, he didn't know how to handle the press. Um, and that's not a judgment because he was just 18 or 19 years old. Um, but it was a very adversarial relationship. But at some point along the way, the penny seems to have dropped. You know, he understands how to to play the game I guess and, and you know as we know it is a game in some sense but since that point he's never really looked back since he's worked it out I'm interested in you know why and how that change came about do you think did somebody break it down for him about this is how you do it did he work it out for himself or did, did success kind of mellow him I think I think it's a combo I think you know, I, I remember. I mean, I, I remember seeing his first interview after he won the the uh, the U.S. Open Juniors in two thousand and four, and he gave this one on one interview with a colleague of mine at BBC Radio, Jonathan Overend, and he, he's, he Jonathan asked him, you know, what's your favourite Grand Slam? Is it Wimbledon? And he and he and he said, no, no, I, I like the U.S. Open. They treat you like um, adults, you know. Wimbledon, they don't they don't really respect you. That you're, you're like a junior. You're treated like juniors, and and whereas at the U.S. Open, they treat you like one of the players, you know, and all this. And I mean, these were really spiky comments straight off the bat, almost uninvited. And it was, I mean, it was it was just box office to listen to. But you thought, crikey, he's going to put some backs up this guy, uh, the way he talks, and. Um, and I, I watched his development then. He he had uh, an Australian Open where he lost early on. And um, and he kind of had a pop at the media straight afterwards saying, you know, you're always, you're always saying I'm gonna, I, I need to win everything. It's just not realistic. And I don't think you're being fair and all this sort of stuff. And, I mean, I think he... <laughs> He he just didn't get it really, and and it, he did speak to one or two of the journalists to say, well, why do you say this sort of stuff, uh, a x y and z about me? And they explained it to him. And look, there there were some I would say irresponsible moments of reporting as well. Um, for instance, his comments about the England football team, which were made in jest and they were made up to be serious, and that worked against him for years. There, there have been others like that where I definitely think we in the media have been responsible for a misrepresentation of him, uh, which which have, have caused problems. And for a while, he certainly pulled his own head in and he just decided he wasn't going to be open at all. And and then people thought he was grumpy and, and he didn't say anything. And he was just being safe because he thought, well, when I do say stuff, you know, it gets taken up and blown up in a way that's used against me. So there was a working out period there. I remember, I remember the first iteration of his, a kind of semi-autobiography. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, bearing in mind, this was only about three years into his yeah. career and it was, it was titled hitting back. That's right. Yeah. And we were like, well, what are you hitting back <laughs> against? You know? And, and it was just him. Rant, it just felt like this rant against everybody. Mm-hmm. He felt that was criticizing him. And, and it just wasn't the way to go. I didn't think at all. I think then he changed management companies and he, he's been with, for the last 10 years, a, a group in 77, the one he ended up naming this group after his 77 years since the Fred Perry Wimbledon triumph between that and his own. And they are they're, they're sort of former PR experts themselves. And I feel as though they kind of helped him along with it. And I don't feel like he's been spun to anybody but they they just have helped him no. to understand who he is and put him in situations and interviews with people that would be able to get him across to people but i think the biggest thing is that 
Murray has figured it out himself, and and that is, I am going to be myself, but I'm going to. I'm going to say I'm going to be careful with one or two things. Uh, there's some things I know that could get inflamed and, and, and cause a problem, but I'm going to say it how it is and and not be afraid of that. And and that has come out the, his stances on sexism and things like that. I mean, have certainly in, within for for women's tennis for instance you you speak to the vast majority of female tennis players and they absolutely revere Andy Murray they love him because he will speak out on their behalf and he will stick up for them and uh i just think that that's the thing he hasn't tried to copy i think if i sometimes feel a bit sorry for Novak Djokovic because i feel as though he's just got it wrong in as much as he's this incredible champion but he's kind of copied the way Roger Federer does things in terms of his public profile and you're always going to end up being compared to that whereas Murray has just gone his own way and has won far far less and I think he's probably just appreciated on the whole I mean Djokovic has got a, a, a huge fan base of his own but the neutral fan i think really appreciates andy murray in a way that maybe they don't as much with Djokovic because they don't feel they know Djokovic. they they can't relate to him murray just sort of lets you have it this is me and i'm quite quite comfortable presenting it to you just finally i mean obviously we, we talked about the the end of the documentary and and where it could possibly have ended in, in Antwerp but can you give us like a resume of where Murray is at and his his comeback at the moment I mean how do you see the next 12 24 months unfolding for Andy Murray is it a steady climb back up the rankings is it a, a kind of straight graph or, or or is there going to be more twists and turns ahead do you know I find it so hard to confidently predict that because the way he's going I think the tennis level he has, and if he could stay injury-free, I could see him becoming a force and being a top-20 player again and getting to the second week of Grand Slams. Whether he can go to the quarterfinals and semifinals is another matter because there are so many good players around. The concerns I would have are the physical ones because you've got the hip. Now, fortunately, he says he still has no pain from it, which is brilliant. But there are other. Th- he's had a sore elbow uh, a few weeks ago he had to pull out after his first match in the davis cup because of a a groin issue and the truth is i just don't think we know i don't think he knows how the rest of his body is going to hold up to the rigors of full-time tennis again i feel some players just they get to a point where the body just can't really handle that anymore and maybe his is around the corner as well I, i asked him a few weeks ago what he would consider to be success one year from now and he said to be healthy to be injury free if I could have had a year without any health issues that would be good enough for me and I think if he can have that I could see him being a top 20 player this time next year and having had one or two big moments that we will always remember again from the Grand Slams whether it's beating a a top player or getting to a quarterfinal or a semi-final I think those things are possible but I also think there is a chance that something may go physically that he ends up just thinking do you know what I don't want to come back from this one I don't want to go through all that rehab again I've had enough now Um, and I think the difference is for the next big injury if he has one like that I think he would be okay with that 
Whereas the big shock to the system for him was with the hip problem. It came out of nowhere. He was world number one. He'd just yeah. won Wimbledon again. He'd just won the O2. He'd won everything. And he felt like this was his going to be his next three or four years to, to contend for the biggest titles in the world with Djokovic, Nadal and Federer. And he had that ripped away from him. And I think mentally that was incredibly tough for him. I think that sent him tail spinning. He's got through that now. And the documentary tells you that story. I think he could handle life after tennis now but when that's going to be no idea thanks to david for agreeing to this interview check him out on twitter at david law tennis and check out the tennis podcast at tennis podcast they are running a kickstarter campaign to fund the new season of the show and i'd urge you to check it out by searching for the tennis podcast on kickstarter and it's also on a pinned tweet at the top of their twitter feed finally check out the entire archive of between the lines and if you've enjoyed this please leave a review tell a friend spread the word Late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Yes.